Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Robert Maranto. He is professor in the Department of Education Reform at University of Arkansas. He's been a long uh, background. He has a long background in civil service reform, particularly school reform. He's the editor of the Journal of School Choice. His books include... President Obama and Education Reform, The Personal and the Political, Beyond a Government of Strangers, and another on a slightly different topic, The Politically Correct University. We are here to talk with him about school choice, where we are now, what's going to happen in, in the future. Welcome, Professor Maranto. Hi, it's, it's so great to be here, and I'll give a quick shout out to my department. We have a wonderful little PhD program in ed policy, and it's just the most heterodox, diverse, intellectually fun uh, group I've ever, I've ever seen, uh, Jay Green and my other colleagues, just really fun people to be around. And, and in fact, this, this thing we'll be discussing today, a lot of it came out of my discussions with them over the years. I, I was actually going to uh, ask you a little bit at the end about uh, this collection of very prominent education reform people who have been senator at the University of Arkansas for several years now. So we'll, let's reserve a few minutes for that at the end. Okay, great. All right. So first... Uh, just in this time of, of lockdowns and school closures, we had a little controversy over homeschooling recently when a Harvard professor argued that homeschooling should be outlawed. What was that all about? Yeah, it's Elizabeth Barthelay, who I want to praise in a lot of respects for a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, I think she's intellectually honest. Um, she has taken on the left, in fact, on a, on a few issues, very which she really had to pay a price for. Taking on the right at Harvard is a little bit easier. Um, and I think I think what she wrote comes out of genuine conviction. Um, a lot of people on the left, um, for example, a, a huge book uh, read, my wife's book group, in fact, read it, is uh, Tara Westover's Educated, which is uh, the story of a woman who was raised by uh, sort of survivalist Mormons who was homeschooled. And, you know, as you can imagine, it, it did not give her a very good grounding for, for living in society. And I think that, that on the left, there's sort of a worship of state institutions and a view that alternatives are going to tend to be abusive. And, and I think that um, Professor Barthelay, for, for all her strengths, I think sort of falls prey to that. Uh, I think the, the piece she wrote in Arizona Law Review uh, last winter has been very controversial, but also very widely 
uh, cited. And I think it's going to be a touchstone for debate for, for decades ahead. And I think we really sort of owe her a debt. And then I think when people have controversial views, we shouldn't sweep them under the rug, right? We shouldn't intimidate people from expressing those views. What we should do is debate them. And uh, I think from all I've heard, she's a very good person. She's a good analyst. Uh, I think she's just wrong. <laughs> you know, and I, I and others should be publicly, we shouldn't be disparaging her. We should be debating her ideas and making sound arguments why, for the most part, this is not the direction America wants to go in. Uh, uh, so that's that's sort of that was one of the precipitators for me writing this National Review piece and, and a much larger uh, scholarly piece. Yeah, uh, you say that the dislike of homeschooling uh, among Harvard professors and others tend to tends to be an elite phenomenon. Why is it an elite phenomenon? Well, much of the homeschooling movement, and not, not all of it by any means, um, uh, but significant parts of it, and probably numerically the majority, are uh, traditional Christians. Um, it, you know, that, that's, again, that's not all of the movement. It's not even really the people who started it. But that is a lot of the movement. And academic elites, media elites, Hollywood elites really dislike traditional Christians. Um, you know, we all have prejudices, right? I mean, we're human beings. Um, all, all of us do. I mean, I, I used to have a prejudice against Mormons. I spent a lot of time doing field work in Arizona. I got to know a number of them, and and you know, I think I've kind of overcome that. Um, I used to have a, I was raised sort of northeastern, sort of Catholic Jewish. I used to have funny views about Southern evangelicals, and then I lived for many years in the South, and I overcame those those negative views. Um. Something I find fascinating, one of the most, and a guy you should probably have on your show, uh, George Yancey at Baylor University wrote a, a, a wonderful book um, uh, 10 years back, Compromising Scholarship, and uh, he looked at anti-Christian bias in the academy and found that, that 20 to 30 percent of professors admit reluctance to hiring Mormons, uh, 30 to 40 percent would be reluctant to hire evangelical Christians, 40 to 50 percent would not hire fundamentalist Christians. Um, and what's interesting is when I bring this up in academic circles, people will, will find – in academia will find reasons why, oh, well, here's why these people aren't suitable. And I'm sort of, well, it's not what pickets always say, right? <laughs> people we don't really know and don't really like aren't suitable to be here. Um, and imagine the, the scandal that Yancey the, – imagine the attention Yancey's book would have found if he had found that there was that sort of prejudice against – Muslims, Jews, gays, mainline Protestants, any number of other groups. Um, politics has always partly been about being part of the cool kids and not being part of the cool kids. And there, there's always going to be prejudice against part of the cool kids, against the, the ones who aren't the cool kids. In academia, in elite business, in elite journalism, traditional Christians are not the cool kids. <laughs> and so looking down on them, disparaging them, not hiring them is is considered sort of okay. Um, and I argue it shouldn't be. And I argue it, it shouldn't, uh, in particular, if we're going to set up regulatory schemes for private schooling and for homeschooling, how can we do that without an animus against disliked minorities? Um, I don't think we can. So I'm I'm very skeptical of the whole approach of, of regulating homeschooling, of regulating um, private schooling. You know, that said, I mean, the critics of these things aren't always wrong. I mean, I mean, sometimes cases of abuse do occur. I think that Professor Barsley makes a good case that we should have some sort of inspection scheme 
etc. But I'm, I'm very, I'm very uncomfortable with how that should work, given the high degree of, of bigotry, you know, among people like me. I mean, I'm an elite academic uh, against traditional Christians in particular. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of part of where this comes from. And I think one thing sort of bad about the exchange is this spring. People were sort of saying it's the Overton window argument, right? We don't want to – this these arguments should be beyond the pale. This is just outrageous. Don't look at this. And again, I have a very different view. I'm like, okay, Elizabeth Barsley is an intelligent person. I think she's a very well-meaning person. What she's – she's writing things that a lot of people were thinking. Uh, part of the role of a public intellectual should be to clarify what people are thinking. And, and the right way to approach this isn't to denounce – her or her ideas, it's to debate them. And I personally think those ideas are, are weaker than ideas for educational pluralism, making the argument that there should be a rich variety of institutions educating kids, parents with a relatively light state footprint. Parents should have choices of a lot of different options. And, you know, we should accept that no one option works for all people. I mean, let me, let me tell you a, a kind of funny anecdote about this. Uh, so I, um, I got elected to school board five years back. I was only one term or I got defeated when I ran for election. Uh, funny thing was I actually got support from the local teachers union, although they disagree with men's school choice. We have a lot of other areas we agree on. Um, the, um, uh, so while I was there, I would tell people, sometimes, you know, I, I didn't really have a great experience in public schools, neither did my kids, and at least not consistently. And people, on school board and in educational administration were just shocked and horrified. I mean, they love traditional public schools. It's, it's what they're all about. They can't imagine that other people, that, that those schools don't serve everyone or don't serve everyone well. Um, we had a superintendent years back, taught at the university, oh, just like 30 feet from me for a long time. Um, nice guy. And he, he would uh, later, later became a school superintendent. He was a superintendent earlier in his career. And he had very contemptuous views of homeschoolers. And then he, he realized one of his colleagues in the adjoining building, who he liked a great deal, was homeschooling his kids. And he got very curious about that. And he started asking questions about it. And he said, why exactly do you do that? Why would anyone do that? And then when he became school superintendent, he actually set up an online educational platform to appeal to people uh, like his colleague. He started to realize that, hey, most of these people aren't crazy. Most of them have legitimate concerns. Most of them, are, there are aspects of traditional public school they may not like. And maybe we can serve their needs in this other way. And I think we need more of those kinds of exchanges where people get to know each other and then can find common ground. And sometimes that common ground will be having separate institutions. Um, I also think we need to really focus on history and study history a lot. And that's a lot of what the National Review essay and the longer scholarly essay are about history. So I've... Um... Let's get to that piece. You, you mentioned you had a piece in National Review. The title is, uh, just last week, the title is School Choice and the Value of Religious Diversity. What was the main point of that piece? Um, the, the main point is that, that there's sort of there's really in some ways two ways to conceptualize a society. And, and one is the way the founding fathers did, which is to have a, a fairly limited government with a very active uh, private sphere, in, including religious institutions, including social institutions, um, and to, to sort of privilege variety. There's a, a wonderful book um, 
uh, Vince Ostrom's The Intellectual Crisis in American Public Administration that came out in the early 70s that, that influenced me a lot. And a lot of Ostrom's argument is this view of the founders um, is very distinct from the views of the early 20th century progressives like Woodrow Wilson, who argued again, instead for a very bureaucratic system, a lot of uniformity run by experts. And as, as Ostrom and others pointed out, there are, there are multiple problems with this. One is experts will, will always be biased. They will always have biases of one kind or another. Uh, Wilson, among other things, sort of drove African-Americans out of the civil service. He imposed a requirement that you had to have a picture when you applied for a job, and that was, was used for prejudicial reasons. Um, but another reason is even when they're not prejudiced, and we all have prejudices, experts will often get it wrong. <laughs> and And so... Ostrom argues the last century of American public administration, we've gone down the wrong road. We've, we've, we've pushed uniformity. We should be pushing variety. And it, that kind of led me in an odd sort of way. One of my, one of my best friends have worked with him off and on for 25 years. He's, he's actually the, the uh, guy's a PhD and MBA. He speaks five languages. He's the chief administrator for our department. Um, the kind of Dirk Van Ramdock. He was educated in Belgium um, in Jesuit schools, and uh, we just had talking about how the Belgian system and the American system are so different. And you know, Belgium it's it's a socially it's a social democratic country. It's a fairly large state sector, um, and yet they do schooling through publicly funded free markets. You can go to a Catholic school, a Protestant school, a, a secular school. Um, a Muslim school. Uh, they have about two dozen varieties of schooling. The other one's actually is about three dozen. And they're generally pretty good schools. Um, and they're in line with parental values, whatever those values might be. And, and they have not produced terrorists and they have not, you know, uh, produced social dysfunction as near we can tell. And they've produced pretty well-educated people like my friend Dirk. Here in America, we've gone more for public school monopolies. We've traditionally been very skeptical of uh, private education, which until recently was mostly Catholic education, and uh, it's a, and frankly, our outcomes aren't nearly as good, and they're also not always respectful of religious minorities. And so Dirk and I talked about, well, how did this happen? And this led us to some degree to Charlie Glenn at Boston University, who's done wonderful work on this. Ashley Burner at Johns Hopkins is a a wonderful book from 2017. You need to have Ashley on the show. Uh, no one way to school pluralism in American public education. Uh, and and we, we started saying, all right, how did this arise historically? And a lot of it arose. Uh, Belgium, America, Germany, the Netherlands too, all had in some respects similar conflicts in the 1800s and early 1900s um, between between state schools, which in America imposed the Protestant religion, Protestant Bible. Um, and those other countries were more likely to be secular, or at least became secular over time. And and mostly Catholic private schools, which were seen as uh, potentially disloyal, as potentially disruptive, as not doing a good job for kids. And there were, there were battles in all four countries and several others, as Charles Glenn points out, sort of mostly pitting secular forces against Catholics, against traditional Catholics. And in the three countries work them out in, in very different ways. In, in Belgium and the Netherlands, where, where the, t the two parties were pretty evenly matched, they eventually reached, I think, a very healthy compromise, that there would be state funding of whatever schools parents ch chose, uh, so long as those schools 
did teach certain skills and also taught loyalty to the country. You know, I understand why we, we would not want schools teaching people that, that they should secede, right? Um, uh, in America, the compromise, initially, a lot of states and localities, especially in the Northeast where there were a lot of Catholics, funded Catholic schools with that sort of of bargain that, you know, people can have their own schools, have their own religion, so long as those schools teach American values, loyalty to the American Republic, loyalty to the Constitution, love of American history, and, and so on. Um, those bargains in America were unraveled after the Civil War when Republicans, I mean, most, most notably James G. Blaine, um, argued that Catholic schools were sources of potential rebellion and defunded them. Uh, 29 states, eventually period of 37, but 29 states in that period passed Blaine amendments saying that you couldn't have any public funding of, uh, of private, meaning essentially Catholic schools. And that was, was all out of anti-Catholic bigotry. There were really no other reasons behind it. The Ku Klux Klan was one of the big supporters of those laws. Oregon went so far as to outlaw private schools, meaning Catholic schools, which um, uh, in the Pierce case, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the Supreme Court in 1925 overturned it and said that the child is not the mere creature of the state. Um, later in the Yoder case in the 1940s, uh, the Supreme Court decreed that the Amish could have their own schools. Um, those cases, I think, might be decided differently today. I mean, certainly, and, and I'm not a Republican, at least not in, in all things, uh, but I do worry if the Supreme Court were heavily, if more of a certain kind of appointee were on there, Yoder and Pierce would be decided differently if they came up now. And we might say that the state, in fact, uh, doesn't have an obligation to recognize the right of religious schools to exist, much less homeschooling. Um, but anyway, the American compromise was we did permit private schools and eventually homeschooling. But we, we for a long time outlawed any funding of those schools. More recently, we have allowed funding of those schools, which I think is a, is a positive thing. Um, Germany went in a different direction, and I would say a much more negative one, uh, in the Second Reich uh, culture comp or culture struggle, culture war. The original culture war came from the German equivalent. Um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the German Second Reich under and, and, and spoiler alert, Reichs never end well, um, under Bismarck and others, um, really stressed national unity. And they saw Catholic and other private schools, and to some degree religion itself, as a danger to national unity. Um, Hitler writes a lot about, about that in Mein Kampf. Um, and over time, the state took more and more control over those private institutions. And of course, when the Nazis came to power in the 30s, the Third Reich, uh, they closed or absorbed Catholic and, and other private schools, um, seeing them as a as a danger to state authority. Um, you know, one people, one state, one leader, uh, uh, as as Hitler Hitler's followers would put it. Yeah, well, you you find in you find in the article uh, something of a paradox on that point, where you say that if quote we want culture peace instead of culture war unquote. We need to be flexible and compromising in a good sense when it comes to school policy. So, so the schools need to be diverse. They need we need to have pluralism in in the schools. We need that openness in order to have a as you put it culture peace. 
I, I think we need plur- we need pluralism in multiple ways. And the article talked more about about school choice with people choosing their own schools, which which often religious based schools, which the research clearly shows is not divisive. I mean, people going to Catholic schools are more likely to support civic values are less likely to be bigoted than people who go to traditional public schools. Um, the controlling for everything else we seem able to control for. Uh, so empirically, they don't seem to be undermining Republic, but it, the Republic. But I also think we need to have a more pluralistic mindset within traditional public schools. Um, so we had a, at my district had a minor Christmas war about a year back when there was a memo that uh, you know essentially meant to say don't use the Christmas season to proselytize. But was interpreted as saying you, know, you can't put up any Christmas trees or Christmas crushes or or have Christmas music or anything, and we had a, a bit of a fight over that. Eventually, it was it was resolved in my school district, I thought, in a reasonable way, where we essentially said, no, no, you can you can have Christmas trees, you can have Christmas crushes, etc. Uh, just you know, make sure that others also feel included, which is reasonable. I I, I argue that look, you know, we should use this as a as an opportunity that we are a college town. We're a fairly diverse community. My, my daughters uh, were Christians. My daughter's best friend is uh, uh, sort of Buddhist slash animist from China. And um, uh, her friend doesn't know anything about Christianity, you know, and, and our daughter doesn't know really. I mean, she does now, actually, she studied it, but until recently she knew nothing about Buddhism. Um, why don't we look for opportunities to, I said, look, you know, last year, Ramadan, um, Ramadan, Easter, and Passover fell at roughly the same time. I said, "This is perfect. Let's have a <laughs> let's have school assemblies celebrating all three. I mean, we need to be comfortable about talking about differences and and teaching kids about them. It's part of education. I argued we should have a, a mandatory world religion class. People in the public sector are terrified of this. They're absolutely terrified of anything." faith-based, that if they take the minorest misstep, they'll be accused of bigotry. And I think that's a, that's a mistake. I mean, public schools now, people were told we were just supposed to be about the economy. I think that's absolutely wrong. We should be producing citizens who are reasonably knowledgeable and who are ready to be citizens, which means understanding different kinds of people and you know, censoring out Christianity, which is kind of what we've increasingly done. Uh, and also not teaching other religions is a mistake. Do the ed schools that train and certify teachers try to impart the value of pluralism in, in schooling, religious schooling, homeschooling, different kind of charter schools? Is that part of the, the ed school curriculum? No. We are, we are hostile to it. We're very much sort of in the vein of Woodrow Wilson, that are the, 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 the German Second Reich. There should be you know, one people, one way of doing things. We've embraced the diversity movement, but first off, we don't actually mean it, <laughs> if you look at what we actually do. Uh, so I know ed schools that talk endlessly about diversity, but would never send one of their new teachers to a majority black school. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's one thing. Um, uh, but we also, we're, we're very... This is something that people need to realize, and and uh, Jonathan Way and I wrote an article uh, last January for the the Journal of Intelligence about this. Um, intelligence and education are not key part of ed schools. Ed schools came out of again out of the progressive era when they wanted to make schools like factories and factor and they did you know grade large institutions grade based teachers are treated as factory workers. There's kind of a distrust of intelligent teachers because they might they might use their minds. Uh, the um, 
most school administration is mostly male. Fifty-three percent of male principals nationally are former coaches. We have no recent data. The data we do have is from the 70s, and back then almost 80% of superintendents were former coaches. Um, these are good guys. They're good people. They work hard. Um, they're very into teamwork. They're not into diversity. Everybody needs to pull together, right? And the, the wide receiver doesn't get to question the coach's plays. So they're very they're, – they're first not very much into education, as we in colleges would tend to, to think of it. But secondly, they're definitely not into diversity. It's it's not their thing. Not into intellectual diversity. To some degree, they're into ethnic diversity. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the wide receiver may be a different race, but they're they're deeply the people running school systems are deeply uncomfortable with ideological and religious diversity, and and pretty uncomfortable with with academic achievement. I mean, if you're if you're someone who takes a lot of AP courses, you're not seen as a future teacher or future school leader. It's, it's kind of not – it's not culturally where the system is. And so there's a real discomfort with – that carries over to real discomfort with private religious schooling and anything else that doesn't really fit in. That's sort of different from Elizabeth Bartholay. She's representing more elite approaches to this, more the people at Harvard or Yale or the New York Times how they would, would sort of view the deplorables in the, in the hinterlands. Um, you know, not realizing that, I mean, religion for, for most of us, even in blue states, is an important part of our lives. It structures how we view the world. It keeps us from doing bad things. Um, and there's, there's sort of an absence of appreciation for just how important that is for so many people and how, you know, as, as, uh, as Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize winning economist, has pointed out, as religion has fallen away among the working class in particular, suicides have gone up, drug use has gone up, and these have not, these have not generally been good social changes. And again, we have evidence that when kids go to private religious school and when they're, when they're homeschooled, the outcomes tend to be better than in traditional public schools. Now, uh, you worked in the Brookings Institution and in the Clinton administration in the 1990s. Uh, on, on some of these issues, I, I, I gather, where was the Democratic Party then on the issue of, let's just say, school diversity? And wh where is the Democratic Party on it now? I mean, the Democratic Party has always been, been split on it and probably always will be split on it, partly because a lot, of the, a lot of the people who do the worst in traditional public schools, ethnic minorities in particular, um, tend to vote Democratic. So there will always be a significant Democratic reform impetus. Uh, Bill Clinton was something of a reformer. He was very supportive of charter schools, as was Barack Obama. Uh, if you read his autobiography, Obama, Obama's time as a community organizer in Chicago made him made him disbelieve in urban public schools. Um, he realized we, we just have to have other alternatives. Um, he's very skeptical of religion, so he could never embrace vouchers. I mean, like most elites, he, he just couldn't go there, uh, which is a shame, I think. But the Democratic Party has, has always been sort of more split on these things than we think. Um, they go for traditional public schools because teachers' unions are there, and money is there, and bureaucracy is there, and the Democratic Party is wedded to bureaucracy. But there have always been significant parts of the party that are skeptical of that. 
Um, uh, and, and honestly, like I said, it's kind of interesting. Here in my town, I was mostly allied with the local teachers union, right? <laughs> because although we, we disagreed on school choice, we, we did think schools should be more about um, academics and football. And uh, <laughs> a lot of the Republicans in the town would be more on the football side. I mean, politics can make strange bedfellows. And someone that I, something that I really push on people is people who disagree with you on one thing may end up agreeing with you on something else. I mean, I've voted against Bill Clinton twice, but I was serving the administration. I was below the political level, but they hired me because I was one of the few people writing in public administration who really liked the Clinton-Gore reinventing government uh, plan. Um, sometimes you may disagree with people on some things, end up agreeing with them on others, and that's part of appreciating diversity and, and finding common ground. And I, you know, I, I, my big argument is I think we need to get better at getting elites to recognize the value of people who aren't like them and who have views, including religious views, that may not conform neatly with what you would get at a Harvard or Yale seminar. Yeah. Oh, okay. In, in the last few minutes, what is the story of the University of Arkansas School of Education reform? It's, it's kind of strange. It's um, about 15, 15 years ago or so, we had a very enterprising dean. He's retired now, but still alive and active in the community, a guy named Reed Greenwood, who, a brilliant guy, dean of the College of Education and Health Professions, native Arkansan, loves his state dearly, and argued that we, we just needed we needed massive change in schools. He It's interesting, he had a counseling background, I think, uh, I know at least one of his kids was a special ed kid going through school, so he sort of appreciated that schools don't do well with all kids. And Reed spent years sort of talking up the idea to the Walton Family Foundation and other potential donors. And in the end, he and others, uh, there's a huge $300 million grant to the university from the Waltons. And Reed was able to carve off $26 million of it to endow the Department of Education reform, and they hired Jay Green to run it. And the idea was hire a bunch of really bright people, three of my colleagues are their PhDs from Harvard um, in, in political science and economics, and get them to think outside the box on schooling. And I think we've, we've had some impact on some things. Uh, Jay Green, my department chair, was, I think, the first to point out that high school dropouts uh, were about a third higher in number than anyone thought. And he sort of put that on the national agenda. Patrick Wolf, um, is probably the best evaluator in the country of voucher programs. And because of his work, the programs in D.C. and Milwaukee were expanded. The programs in Louisiana and Indiana, which are not working so well, will hopefully be improved. Um, Bob Costrell helped put teacher pensions, which are a huge unfunded uh, mandate, on the national agenda. He just crunched the numbers. So he's had People doing uh, Jonathan Way, my colleague, is one of the leading experts on intelligence and intelligence testing. So we had really interesting people doing doing very interesting things, and that's been a you know I think a huge success in health education both in Arkansas and, and nationally. We have a great little PhD program. We've well find our students. All of them are getting nice jobs. The current national director of education statistics is one of ours. Um, the uh, uh, I, my former research assistant is now in a long-term research line at Harvard. He and I just did a book on religious schooling. Uh, Mohammed Dinesh Shaquille, he's maybe, he's becoming maybe the country's leading expert on Islamic education. Um, you know, wonderful person, wonderful scholar. Do, do, do you train, do, do you have an undergraduate? Is there an undergraduate major? Um, no, we just, we just do doctoral students. Um, now and then one of us will teach an undergrad class, but we really 
we're sort of a small, well-funded doctoral program, which is a, a fun place to be. Um, you know, I have, uh, uh, I have no complaints. And I think a lot of it is owing to the, the foresight of, of Reed Greenwood. Um, you know, people who are really part of the system aren't great innovators. You have to think a little bit like an outsider. And I think Reed's background in counseling and maybe some of his personal background enabled him to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last, last question. Uh, how has the Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, been on, on the issues of, of educational school diversity? Um, I think her heart is in the right place. I think politically she has not been as sure-footed as one might like. Um, I, but you know, but then again, the opposition to her was so strenuous and so almost unthinking. Uh, I mean, I think that, and and here's where you know I'd like to conclude with some recommendations. Um, Again, people in elite institutions, New York Times, Harvard University, whatever, may literally never encounter a, an evangelical or, or fundamentalist Christian. It's a, it's a totally different world to them. And I think that it, it is up to them to try to be more open to those people of faith, but it's also up to people of faith to kind of crash into those institutions over the next 20 years if they want to be taken seriously and ultimately have some influence. And... Um, I think right now there isn't the infrastructure to allow someone like DeVos to have the impact that maybe she could. Um, I would also say uh, she has had very positive impact on one thing. I would urge everybody to read – it's a wonderful book out of the Brookings Institution Press, The Transformation of Title IX, which is really – unfortunately – and I like so much of a President Obama, but this was where he made a big mistake – uh, really impose speech codes and all kinds of other very negative things in universities. And um, DeVos has been able to clip back those regulations. That's been a huge success, uh, Shep Melnick and others have written about. And, you know, I, I just hope if there's a Biden administration that they stick with the Trump improvements on this. I mean, things like uh, the presumption of innocence in a trial, things like the value of free speech, we really should not be questioning those, in particular not in higher education. But but that's kind of where we are, in, in part because of the Obama administration's Title IX regulations. Uh, Professor Robert Moranto, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.